Welcome to PLN Rewind. Tune in to catch up on the Progressive Law Network's past events and discussions about the many ways in which to engage with legal challenges to bring about positive social change in our community. We will start now by um, each of our speakers introducing themselves. So if you could just tell tell us a bit about yourself and your career. Uh, maybe we'll start with George. Sure, that's fine. Well, yeah, look, my career has been a long one within the law. I graduated in the 1990s um, from law school. I spent a year working at the High Court. I was really lucky that the year I was there was 1992. So the first case I got to work on as an associate was the Marbo case. And uh, then it was the free speech cases. And from there, I uh, have been in practice, have been in academia. And uh, for the last many years before I became a dean, I've specialised in high court litigation in constitutional matters, often for Aboriginal people or counter-terrorism and the like, and writing things about how Australia's legal system needs to be changed uh, to provide things like bills of rights and justice for Aboriginal people. So my work is really on the progressive end of law reform uh, in regard to the Australian constitution. Awesome. And Tamar, maybe next? Um, yep. So I uh, graduated in 2000 from ANU and started out um, working in the legal aid office in the ACT doing family violence matters and then discovered community legal centres in 2002, first of all in Canberra and then moved to Melbourne because I was so impressed with the community legal sector down in Melbourne. Um, and started working in 2005 at the Flemington Legal Centre and discovered... Um, issues around racism and policing and I've been dealing with that for 15 years. It's one of those topics that you can't really get away from once you start um, understanding what's going on. So I've been working, first of all, uh, my research con concentrated on um, police complaint systems and human rights compliance in police complaint systems and now I've been looking um, more closely at racial profiling in particular and um, strategies for dealing with racial profiling. Awesome. And Tim, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, folks. My name's Tim. Thanks for having me. I work at Democracy in Colour. It's a racial and economic justice organisation led by people of colour. Before that, I um, worked at United Voice, which was what was formerly known as United Voice before they merged. Uh, to become the United Workers Union, um, working with hospitality workers and supported a whole bunch of low paid workers to start Hospo Voice, uh, which is a new union for hospitality workers. If there are hospitality workers um, on this call, please join that union. Uh, and before that, I worked at Chutka, which is the Indian equivalent of GetUp, living in Bangalore for a bit. And I've worked for a couple of politicians as an advisor uh, and got started in campaigning, doing climate activism in Queensland, which is where I up so keen for the discussion awesome thank you um we'll start by asking some questions of george so george we have been in a state of emergency um in recent times at both state and federal level uh can you speak on that and particularly what extra powers have governments both state and federal had during this time and maybe what the advantages and disadvantages of those increased powers are Sure, and uh, you're certainly right, we are in a state of emergency and it's not just um, us thinking that way, the law actually says that. At the state level, Victoria of course has got public health emergency legislation that's been activated, the same in New South Wales, and typically around the states you have the ability to declare a state of emergency for a medical reason, a bushfire, all sorts of reasons. 
What's also really unusual about this time is we've also got a national state of emergency, and that's been declared under the biosecurity legislation of 2015, and that enables the Governor-General to declare a human biosecurity emergency. This is the first in our history because, of course, it's recent legislation. But that federal legislation is truly extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it in terms of the powers that emerge once this biosecurity legislation is activated. Uh, it means that the uh, health minister essentially is a dictator for the period of this emergency. Uh, Greg Hunt as health minister can make any determination. He can make any declaration he wants to combat the pandemic. Uh, in doing so, he can override any law and uh, you know, that's pretty unusual that you give a minister the power just to override the law in any way they think. And his decisions are expressly protected from review by parliament. So when you put those things together, I mean, that's, that's as powerful as you can possibly be uh, in any country. And uh, to this point, they're using it to close borders, do all sorts of things that the community may well support, we may well need. But the significant thing about this emergency, particularly at the national level, is there's no backstops. There's no bills of rights. There's no free speech. So if Greg Hunt goes too far, um, litigation is almost impossible. Um, and we're really putting enormous trust and faith in our politicians to do the right thing. And by and large, I think they probably have, but it's a risk. And uh, you've also got to hope that they return these powers when they're no longer needed, because there's also a risk, as we see in other countries, that uh, politicians tend to like this sort of power. And again, in Australia, there's no clear time limits in the constitution we are just relying upon this legislation and our politicians to exercise these truly extraordinary powers um, in ways that do serve the community. Yeah, and so those powers, the increased powers, what kind of impact do you think they have or could have on human rights? Well, and of course, in the most fundamental ways. And uh, uh, I mean, just the fact that people have been banned from leaving their houses at different times without, unless they fall within a set of exemptions. Um, I mean, that just shows how far this has gone. I mean, normally we talk about a range of, you know, deeply problematic issues for civil liberties, but this is essentially subjecting millions of people to house arrest, um, unless they fit in an exemption about visiting a, a place to buy food or a range of reasons. And again, that may well be justified, but that's pretty extraordinary that we would do that to a population. Then you've got the closing of borders. Um, the last time we had anything like this was in the Spanish flu pandemic 100 years ago. Uh, beyond that, you've also got things like preventing people from visiting places. You know it's a problem in Australia when they close the beaches. In my area, Coogee Beach or Bondi Beach close by. And, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty fundamental when you get to that level of removing people's ability to access public spaces. Uh, you've also got under this legislation the ability to direct people to be subject to biosecurity control orders. It means that people can be directed to have medical treatment, to provide body samples without their consent. And normally, particularly medical law, it's gotta be with your consent, but this can bypass that entirely. And uh, it again shows just how intrusive these powers are, perhaps with justification, but uh, you know, it does raise big questions about where the balance lies. Yeah, it's definitely a huge question of whether um, these increased powers are justified. Um, do you kind of have an opinion on that? Whether, like, obviously these powers are at least in our lifetimes and everyone's lifetimes um, unprecedented. And I'm wondering whether you have an opinion on whether they are justified. 
by and large, I think um, it is justified that at a time of enormous community danger due to a pandemic, that our governments can protect the community by exercising powers of this kind. Um, and I think that's equally an exercise of human rights. I mean, the right to life, uh, medical health is something we expect governments to protect. And sometimes community safety requires strong communitarian government action. Um, so broadly, I support the idea that our governments can act with urgency in decisive ways in the event of a pandemic. What I have the problem with is that should be subject to checks and balances. If someone goes off the rails, we should be able to do something about it. If, for example, they start using this to clamp down on free speech, um, I've got a problem with that. Or if they use this in ways such as closed borders where it's simply not justified or doing ways that involve racial profiling or all sorts of issues, well, I think there should be room for intervention. My problem is that we don't have these avenues in Australia and trust, you know, that can run thin sometimes. And uh, I, I think we do need good checks and balances, particularly given how extraordinary these powers are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those checks and balances are really a fundamental um, part of kind of keeping governments accountable. And I agree, it is a bit concerning that we don't have them. Um, we will move on now to Tamar. So we've seen some extreme policing measures in this time. Can you explain from your perspective what those measures have looked like and to what extent they are unprecedented? Yeah, well, as George has just explained, the, the, um, the rules are quite extraordinary and, and um, we've never seen anything like um, the, the types of rules being imposed on the population as we've just seen now. Um, and one of the problems is that what with those rules have actually been very unclear um, just about how where the exceptions are and, um, and how they operate, which has really given police a huge level of discretion as to um, how they enforce those, those laws. And that's, that's highly problematic to have um, kind of broad sweeping um, ambiguous and discretionary laws uh, that are left in the hands of police to determine um, what to do. And one of the issues is I guess they have been given orders to go out and um, police these, these laws and they have done so in the way that they know how best to do so and that is to roll out their, their usual operations. And so what we've seen is where they have um, operational strategies of intense, high-level, high-visibility policing, um, and this has particularly been obvious in New South Wales where journalists have done a lot of the gathering of information. They've seen that um, it's been in the western suburbs and regional areas where high-visibility um, policing has occurred, whereas um, in the... In the um, uh, the more affluent suburbs, police visibility has been less. And really that's, I think, what that has done is reveal what has been standard operating procedure of policing in those areas all along. And yet the, um, the introduction of these laws has just, you know, heightened the visibility of that, of that operational policing um, coming out. And I guess because we know that um, it is those affluent suburbs, the disease has been more prevalent, and the poorer suburbs where it hasn't. So we know that in the, this circumstance that the risk, that police are not policing risk, they're policing usual suspects. Um, and, and that's sort of clearly apparent to the public. Um, the, it, it, they've always done that, but it's been less apparent because 
the police have been able to cage risk in a way that um, the public view is more um, acceptable. There's been an acceptance that um, low economic racialized communities might be more criminal. There's a, there's a kind of a public view that, that that is normal and therefore the police have got away with it in the past. But it's come into sharp relief when looking at the policing of um, COVID-19 um, laws. So I think, um, I think what's really happened is that for the first time, white people have been subject to laws that have generally been, um, the police have, have been uh, acting as if it's a crime to walk in groups of two or, or more if you're an Aboriginal or African person. So you're, you're at risk of being policed normally um, under normal circumstances um, if you're of those racial groups, but suddenly um, now white people are at risk of being policed if they walk in groups of two. And so I think it's been very confronting to, um, to the white population to be suddenly subject to the types of policing that racialised communities have been um, subject to more generally. So it's been a very interesting time and I'm hoping it's quite a wake-up call for the general public in looking at just how, um, how business as usual policing operates regardless of what the, what the underlying law is that they're, they're meant to be policing. Yeah, definitely. Um, that actually leads into my next question, which is about returning to a normal state of policing. Um, how do we do that and do you think there's any scope for kind of the increased awareness that we've been noticing and the increased attention in the media to disproportionate policing do you think that that gives us any scope for the normal to change um yeah so i think i think it would be really dangerous to have vague laws hanging around for the police to um, use their discretion to, to police at their own whim. So I would hope that um, as, as um, restrictions are wound back, laws are wound back um, at the same time, and that you know it's quite publicly clear that that's the case. But I think, um, I mean, what's been really interesting is um, strategies like in Victoria, they announced at one point when they realised that the police were just getting out of hand with the number of, number of fines that were being issued, was that police would have to get supervision, su um, a supervisor um, permission before they can go ahead and issue a fine. And I think that that is actually really, um, that's an important check that I'm hoping some of these strategies might continue forward, that maybe actually we should have um, supervisors be, um, being asked to sign off and fines under, under normal circumstances so that they can be assessed for um, whether they are, you know, racially, um, racially disproportionate, whether, whether it's necessary. Because, I mean, one of the really interesting things is that we've had the same laws in the ACT, but the number of fines issued in the ACT is drastically less. So it's definitely a, a practice decision that the police are operating on as to whether or not to issue a fine. Um, so, yeah, in terms of things returning to normal, um, well, I think for a lot of the community, they're probably, um, I mean, business of, as, as usual was always problematic. Um, and so really for that community, we don't really want to see a, a return to business as normal. Um, hopefully we've been exposed to the problem a bit more clearly across the whole of the community. Um, and, and now hopefully there'll be a bit more community appetite for some real genuine um, regulation of what the police are doing. And so, um, so one of the things I think that really this highlights is the need for there to be data collection on 
who the police are policing, why they are policing those people, um, what are the outcomes, what are the reasons, um, so that we can actually start tracking the, the overall racial disproportionality in policing that is business as usual. So I'm hoping that's going to be one of the outcomes from this, from this um, process. So ideally that the police would track their own actions like the Police Accountability Project does. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I mean, that's using um, individuals to come out and um, talk about their experience. But what we really need is every single stop that the police engage in should be recorded. Um, the perception of the, pers of the race of the person that the police is stopping should be recorded. The reason for that stop should be recorded. Um, the outcomes, whether or not like a search was conducted. So, um, so all of this kind of level of detail needed needs to be collected for every single interaction, police initiated interaction that the police um, have. And this is across Australia. And this is not without precedent. There are parts of the world where um, a lot of this data is collected. In the UK, um, stop and search is, co is collected. Um, the race of the person who the police stop stops is, is recorded. Um, and that's true in parts of the UK and the US. So it's, it's really a strategy that hopefully um, there'll be a bit more impetus around rolling out here in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I certainly hope that there is a push for that. Um, so I guess we'll move on now uh, to Tim. So regarding those, the effects of policing, um, in what ways have these measures disproportionately affected marginalised communities? If you could speak a bit more on that. Yeah, sure. I think Tamara touched on some of it. I think the first thing is like, you know, there's no doubt that physical distancing measures have, have saved lives, um, but the way in which those measures are did, um, uh, I think there's, there's enormous scope to, to have a discussion about that. And I think the state, the Australian government, defaulted to a police state response to enforcing them. And that certainly wasn't like, you know, the inevitable response we needed to have. And I feel like um, we need to have a much greater emphasis on community education and accountability as a way of uh, introducing and maintaining public health measures. Uh, and I think this is important. Like, I think it's important to, you know, have a focus on community education as opposed to police or over-policing uh, as an enforcement mechanism, uh, because it's really important to remember that, you know, the state has a long history of using quarantine and pandemic as a means of harming and controlling people. Uh, and that the expansion of police powers expands um, for many of the reasons that Tamar mentioned. Uh, the expansion of police powers expands the opportunities for abuse and violation of rights, and especially for communities who are already experiencing a disproportionately high level of, of uh, discriminatory policing, which are communities of colour, Indigenous folk, et cetera. Um, you know, low-income folk, homeless folk, uh, and the other thing, I think, the third reason is that, you know, during a pandemic, um, there's an urgent need, and you could argue there's an urgent need generally, but there's an urgent need, especially during a pandemic, to reduce the number of people coming into contact uh, with the criminal legal system. You know, <laughs> prisons are epicenters for infectious diseases. We don't want more people um, <laughs> going, you know, in prisons at this time. We don't want more people um, having unnecessary contacts um, with our criminal justice or injustice system. Uh, so I think, like, that's, that's the sort of framing of the answer that I want to start with, that it's, uh, we should have had a much greater focus on community education and community accountability as a way of implementing public health measures instead of uh, over-policing and, and, you know, this police state response, which is what we've seen broadly speaking. 
um, throughout the country. Uh, and I think the way that these measures are enforced is crucial. You know, they can be implied, applied in a, a discriminatory um, uh, and harmful manner. And I think in some cases they have been. Um, uh, a disproportionate number of fines have been issued in areas that are largely populated by Aboriginal folk um, uh, and migrants. Uh, and Tamar sort of mentioned it, I'll just briefly speak to, you know, the analysis, there was an analysis of New South Wales fines by the Saturday paper in April, um, which found fines were predominantly issued in Western Sydney, which is an area of Sydney that is predominantly um, people of colour, communities of colour. Uh, and 15% of all fines uh, uh, in New South Wales were in just three uh, local government areas. So Liverpool, Canterbury, Blackstown, um, Bankstown uh, and Fairfield. Um, and these were areas that represented just 5% of recorded COVID cases. So you've got a discrepancy between where the fines are being issued uh, and where, you know, which parts of Sydney or New South Wales are responsible um, for COVID cases. Um, and you compare that to the local government areas around Bondi Beach, you know, um, Northern Beaches, Waverley, very affluent folks, very, very affluent areas, um, quite white areas. Uh, and they recorded 19%, sorry, 15% of New South Wales cases. 15% are recorded uh, COVID cases uh, in New South Wales, uh, but only had 1.8% of infringements. Uh, so, you know, it's there's very clear evidence. You know, it's not a matter of discussion as to whether the uh, these uh, expanded policing powers have been applied in a discriminatory manner. They have been. It's played out in the data. Um, and also, it's not surprising either, because uh, you think about, uh, uh, you know, the pandemic hasn't created issues. It's just exposed and exacerbated pre-existing inequalities. And one of those inequalities that already existed in the before times, uh, before this was a thing, uh, was discriminatory and biased policing. Um, and I think it's like, you know, you go to the US as a great example for like extreme everything. Um, and the US is a great example of like this taken, you know, on steroids. Uh, I don't know if you, if you knew this. I, I found out, you know, last month I learned, um, this is going to blow your mind if you didn't know this. In Michigan, the state of Michigan, it's illegal to bring a protest sign into the state capitol. Um, but not an assault weapon, right? You can bring an assault weapon um, into the state capital, but not a protest sign. And there were these extraordinary scenes last month where there was this group of heavily armed men that literally tried uh, to take the parliament floor, you know, with, with assault rifles. Um, and that's illegal. Uh, but you think about, you know, this is a country, the US, where black people are murdered by police and others for jogging. You know, black people are murdered uh, for going outside, for being in their car, for just living. Uh, and you think, uh, you know, you think if, if the scenes that you saw of um, heavily armed white people, you know, protesting the fact that they couldn't get a, a, a haircut, you know, um, with their, their assault rifles outside of, outside of um, their state parliaments, if that was uh, black folks or other people of colour, uh, they would have been, uh, the police response would be markedly different and people would have died. Um, uh, and so, you know, that, that's an extreme example in the US, uh, but I think the same uh, sort of idea uh, applies here, where there is one set of rules and approach by the police for some people and another, an entirely different set of rules for, for other folks. Uh, and just the last thing I want to say is, I think, uh, you know, I've talked broadly about how we haven't really applied it well, but I think the ACT is a, is a good example of a, of a state or a territory um, uh, that um, has taken a good approach. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think they've issued any fines, or at least as, as of last month, uh, and they've instead had a focus on communication and education, which is what um, uh, we should have had from the start.
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Tim. I'm wondering just, this is kind of, could be Tim or could be anyone just as a bit of a side question. Fines in general, like, do you have a perspective on, so the ACT hasn't issued fines, though they could, and I'm wondering whether anyone has a perspective on the concept of fines and how productive they are and how well they work as a deterrent and whether there's something that we should be like um, promoting or whether they're kind of more problematic and less effective. Anyone? I don't know the full answer to that, but I can just say that they are a very um, non-progressive form of punishment in terms of the effect um, if you are a low income earner and you receive a fine, it has a massively disproportionate impact on your life, livelihood um, than if you're a wealthy person, you receive a fine. And, you know, there are people going to jail with unpaid fines in parts of Australia and, um, with, you know, very serious effects. So, I mean, I, I would say that um, I, I think they are very problematic in that they are not progressive and perhaps if they were um, calculated as a basis of your income, then that, that might be a little bit more fair. Um, that's just one comment on fines. Yeah, and I, I agree with those concerns. And, uh, you know, fines are a really blunt instrument. I mean, that said, you do need some form of disincentive. And, you know, if someone is willfully breaching a quarantine and, and risking infection for other people, um, there needs to be a way to manage that just to maintain the health and livelihood of other people. Um, personally with fines, I think either yes, you make them dependent on income, but that can be tricky, um, or just make them nominal and small. So for example, with voting, there is a fine connected to not voting, but it's about 20 bucks. But it works because it's like a slap on the wrist, it's enough to actually provide a disincentive. Whereas here you have quite large fines, $1,000 or more, potentially five year jail terms, and they are very disproportionate, particularly on low income earners, and they just frankly don't need to be that large. You know, maybe if there was a 50 buck fine, you would provide a sting, a disincentive, um, without actually having you know the enormous consequences for a low income owner that flowed from the current level. Yeah, I think the the only other thing I'd add is, of course, when people are willfully uh, disregarding public health measures, there need to be consequences. But I think the vast majority of um, folks who have been fined have just like not known what's going on, uh, and I think that's because um, we've had you know a punitive enforcement regime being introduced before there was a public communication campaign. And I think like you know it's very easy because. Um, Australia has had a relatively successful, you know, approach to um, uh, stemming the curve, uh, uh, to have an ahistorical approach to this. But the federal government at the start of this crisis had an appalling um, uh, and uh, contradictory um, uh, communication, public communications approach to this crisis, where you had the prime minister, you know, talking about going to I don't know sports, but whatever sport he was talking about, the AFL or some, the cricket or some sport thing, uh, uh, you know, uh, on the same week that the the World Health Organization uh, labeled the coronavirus as a pandemic. So um, uh, we've had, a, 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 it's gotten better, uh, which is like not really a, you know, they didn't really set a high bar to begin with, uh, but they had a, an appalling uh, and contradictory uh, public, you do remember those rambling like midnight press conferences? Of course, people are confused. Uh, and so, you know, uh, you've got to have a public health, you know, a communication campaign before you introduce punitive uh, enforcement. Yeah, and a punitive I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, there has been really confusing messages. And that's really tough to pick people up where they've just been legitimately confused by the messages. And the other point is that 
Of course, the police have the job of enforcing these and it's natural they will follow the same patterns they do for other forms of policing. It's just the way they work. They'll know the sorts of people they look for. Um, so exactly the sort of profiling you'd expect in normal policing, you'll pick up here with any offence of this kind, particularly low order, public order like offences. Um, you know, if we see it in vagrancy, we see it in offensive language, all sorts of areas. So you're just going to pick up the normal bias in the system. And again, that's where the absence of checks and balances and scrutiny is a real problem, I think. So it just shouldn't be any surprise that this replicates existing problems in the policing processes. Right. And then the other thing is, I'm not aware that there was any special circumstances exceptions, like uh, for, you know, people who are homeless or have mental illnesses or, um, you know, a whole host of reasons that we have special circumstances around other fines for these ones. So, yeah, very blunt. Yeah, absolutely. And it just brings us back to the necessity for police to be accountable. And also that point about how our primary focus should be education rather than punishment. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would like to get everyone's perspective or perhaps um, Tim's first. We have seen the current measures affect the right to protest and consequently the right to free speech. Um, the Mantra Hotel protests are an example of this. Is this an impact of COVID that you find troubling and to what extent do you think that the legislation was designed to prohibit those rights? I think it's definitely troubling. I mean, it's a slippery slope. Uh, and as we start to get uh, uh, down this, this line, uh, it's very hard to, to wind things back. And also, you know, people's sense of um, what's acceptable. You know, the Overton window starts to shift a little bit. And as, 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 the, as we craft a new normal, and what the public perceives as normal um, degrades in terms of like our public liberties. So that's really concerning. And uh, I think, you know, you mentioned one example there, but the same thing was happening in Brisbane with the detention of refugees at the Kangaroo Point Central Hotel. Uh, and there's, uh, there's these, these have been sort of on and off protests for the last sort of months, and there've been ridiculous levels of police uh, presence at these protests, and it's clearly designed to intimidate folks. Uh, and I believe there was an arrest a, a few months a few weeks ago uh, of a doctor for holding a, a protest sign for, you know, being um, in, in violation of a health direction. But, you know, apparently it's, it's safe and legal to, to walk around the hotel. But as soon as you're walking around the hotel with a protest sign, you're violating a health direction. So there's a selector uh, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, interpretation uh, of some of these public health directions um, to serve a political purpose, I think. And that's that's very concerning. Yeah, absolutely. Does it, do either of you, Tamara or George, have a perspective on that? I've just got one comment. It was a really interesting um, protest here in Melbourne where uh, people were um, protesting while in a car convoy and having their signs. Was that is that one of the ones that you've mentioned, Tim? I'm not sure. Um, and that was the Metro Hotel one. Yeah, I think. yeah, that's right. So now that now that protest, if you look from a health perspective, um, it's technically violating. The, the laws but actually they're encapsulated in their cars there's no sort of um, uh, chance of, of infection um, crossing outside the car and yet it was when the police were winding down the window and, and putting their face in that you saw the closest contact and I mean I just it, it just raises the whole ludicrousy of the purpose of the laws and the application and, and how they're being interpreted um, very ironic, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it, it is. And 
Well, in terms of the impact on protest, there's no doubting it's major. If you can't leave your house, it's been hard to protest at times. And uh, that said, I mean, I don't think these are directed at protests so much. They're just, uh, I, you know, I clamp down on everything. But it shows what is true for many things in our society, that there's just a, an insensitivity or lack of interest in human rights. Um, you see this, for example, in the press freedom debate, where we have a litany of national security laws that, you know, they jail journalists, do all sorts of things. It's not even as if they've thought about that much. It's just they're so used to passing laws of this kind, they don't build in exceptions for protest, speech, the media and the like. And so when we come to these type of measures, um, they don't even think about civil liberties as being a factor. It's just a fairly authoritarian response. Um, and that's pretty typical of what we get in Australia because we just don't have the nuance and backstop of human rights that would require something different. Yeah, so George, on that point, can I just ask you a question about, um, say, a country like Canada, um, where they've got the, the Charter of Rights there and they've also presumably had a similar um, system. Do you, have you observed or aware of any kind of difference in how that's operated with the Charter there? Yeah, yeah, it, there is a difference and, and also in the US as well. Um, I mean, you see more protest in the US, for example. And it's much harder to lock people down there. And some of that I find a bit problematic too, that um, you know, there is a tension there between community health, community safety and test. And uh, to some extent, I think it's reasonable that there are limits, but at least say in Canada, there's a conversation about those things. They will actually ask what is reasonable. How do we weigh the risk against basic citizens' rights? How do we ensure that the impact on citizens' rights is minimized? and uh, come up with something that's a bit less arbitrary, a bit less blunt, and uh, should operate only for the minimum period required to deal with the pandemic. Um, so it, it's, more, it's more tailored, I think, is what you get. But there's no, no taking away from the fact that tough measures around the world, but uh, you know, I think there's more scope, more leeway, and you may even find in some of those countries that it'll be wound back in a more sensitive way um, because of some of these things. I mean, a good example of this in one of the rare areas in Australia where actually the law does come into play is border closures. Yeah. So one of the few debates we're having in this country is actually about whether they can close borders still under section 92 of the constitution, because, you know, maybe the health crisis isn't quite as severe as it was a few months ago. So we've got this national debate saying, well, maybe we've got to go to the high court. Let's get this tested. Maybe they've gone too far. And that's exactly what we should do. But what we're missing is a debate about, well, what about the human rights element? There's no testing of those things. It just happens we've got this one-off provision about free, free trade and commerce. And that just shows how exceptional that is, uh, as opposed to how in other countries that's a norm. That uh, go too far in Canada, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms will bite and they'll have to wind back the measures. Yeah. Absolutely. And just on that, George, while you're speaking on that, um, I'm interested to know that... So we've also had an audience question about that um, very case. So a couple of days ago, uh, Pauline Hanson came out with an announcement that she's seeking someone with standing to challenge Queensland's lockdown laws at the High Court on that basis of Section 92 of the Constitution. So I'm wondering, do you think that there's any case? Uh, do you think that who would have standing? And do you think that that will go anywhere? Look, and there's probably someone listening who's got this for an assignment or something, but I'll do my best to answer. <laughs> and look, uh, Clive Palmer's also launched a challenge um, against the West Australian laws. And if you want to follow it a bit more, I had a piece in The Australian on Monday um, dealing with this. Look, Clive Palmer and Pauline Hanson have got a really rotten record of winning anything 
in the High Court. But on this one, they could be on a winner. I mean, this is their best shot to win anything in the High Court because the, uh, the Constitution says that free movement, free trade has to be absolutely free in Australia. It's not with the border closures. I think there is an exemption, a, a justification for really extreme measures to respond to a pandemic. But at some point, a line is going to be crossed where you move from necessity to something that's really not so reasonable anymore. But that's about the medical evidence, and that's what the High Court's going to test. But uh, you know, I think there's quite a reasonable chance the border closures will be struck down, if not now, then soon. Um, and, and particularly, not just say for, say, Victorians or New South Wales people going into Queensland, that may be easier to justify, but they're equally knocking out South Australians and Western Australians going to Queensland. Well, what's the justification for that? There's not much risk. They're actually lower risk places than Queensland. So it suggests it's a bit arbitrary and probably will be tough to maintain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just on the comparison to Canada that you touched on before, we also had a student question, uh, audience question on this. Um, we're wondering what your perspective is. Do you think Australia needs a human rights charter or an equivalent? Look, thank you for the question. Yes, I know a very good book on this. It's called A Charter of Rights on Australia, written by uh, Daniel Reynolds and a guy called myself. It's a very good book and uh, it makes a wonderful gift if you're wondering what to give people for Christmas, if nothing else. But, but yeah, I do. Look, I've campaigned on this for a long period of time. I... I, when I finished law school, I didn't really see the need at that point, but what changed my perspective was arguing for the Namanjiri women and the Hindmarsh Island Bridge case in the High Court, where essentially the court recognised that in Australia it's permissible to discriminate against people on the basis of their race. And, uh, you know, this is what gives licence and permission to do some of the really awful things that people have talked about tonight. And I think we need a backstop to say things like racial discrimination are wrong. Um, it should be protected much more forcefully than it is. Many years ago, I had the good fortune to chair the Victorian process that led to the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities. So that was our first. We've got Queensland up now. We should have all the states doing it and we should have a national standard that just sets down really basic human rights that uh, we can enforce against police, government and other agencies that too often you know, I just see in my barrister practice is really sorely lacking. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering if we could ask Tim a question about protest and the adaptation of traditional modes of protest. Uh, we talked about a couple of them today. So do you think that uh, the modes of protest that we've seen, so we're talking like digital rallies as well as we've talked about car protests, do you think that these will stick around? Uh, yeah, look, I think the first thing on this is that, you know, these forms of digital activism are not new. They existed um, in the before times too, maybe not like necessarily digital protests, but, you know, digital activism, whether it be petitions or using other uh, different forms of social media to, to leverage power, um, uh, certainly was a thing that campaigners employed. Uh, uh, and, and it will be something that campaigners employ into the future as well. I, I think at the end of the day, you know, we can talk about tactics till the cows come home, but the, the main principle is that, like, activism is about wielding power. You know, it's about building power and demonstrating power, uh, and you use what forms... Uh, that are available to you, the best and most effective ways of doing that. Um, uh, uh, 
to do those things and and you know people build and and, and mobilize power in different ways you know through information if you're a sort of think tank type um, organization or some some are, um, are mobilizing type organizations that build power through you know building broad numbers um, in a campaign and others are, are organizers that build power through leadership um, development uh, so I think, uh, you know, um, uh, it doesn't really matter to a certain extent how the context changes. You know, we can't gather physically or we can gather physically. It doesn't really matter. Like the same principles of um, uh, being able to wield power, being able to build and then demonstrate power to, to bring communities together, um, uh, either traditionally um, or utilising new technologies uh, to identify, you know, what's in our, our self-interest, our shared self-interest, uh, um, what sort of, you know, society can we fight for or what sort of society do we deserve um, and, uh, you know, how, how are we going to win it? So I think those principles will always, always remain the same. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that, Tim. Uh, we've just had, just back on the Charter of Human Rights, because we've just had a quick audience question and it, um, I'd just like to know what George thinks about this, George. Um, so when the Brennan Report came out, there was a clear emphasis on having a charter, but um, Parliament or the Executive refused to establish one. Do you think that post-COVID there'll be more appetite for this? Yeah, I think there will be. And, uh, you know, that Brennan report was the best opportunity we've had so far to get a national Bill of Rights of some kind. We had over 40,000 Australians saying we needed the change, really powerful stories, um, a lot about mental health, um, but a lot also about homelessness, vulnerable people in all sorts of situations, and just really powerful stories explaining where the system was failing people. Um, and repeatedly. <clears throat> so that report said, yes, we need it. Very clear, overwhelming evidence, but it got delivered at the point where the Rudd government imploded. And uh, Kevin Rudd got deposed by Julia Gillard, uh, the Labor Party moved to the right, and so years of effort got destroyed in the space of a few weeks. It was exactly the same time that the Labor Party dropped their climate change policy. Um, so a lot of really bad things happened at that point. So I think the task now is to mobilise again, and, and that is happening. I mean, the Human Rights uh, Law Centre in Melbourne is leading a national campaign, um, which is picking up a lot of steam. Um, it's worthwhile checking out the work they're doing on social media. Um, and uh, we have now got strong support politically to move forward on this. We're also seeing the momentum building again at the state level with Queensland. That's a really key change there, because the, the view is, look, if Queensland can do it, there's no excuse, really. If Queensland can do this measure, anyone can do it. Um, and I think WA will probably be next. Um, I'm hoping it's going to be an election commitment um, uh, later this year for the Labor Party. Tasmania is on the path where the opposition there is committed to doing this if they win. So the momentum has absolutely picked up. And I think COVID-19 will because it's a bit of a, you know, a grim insight into what happens when you lose your liberties. Maybe there's some justification when there's a pandemic, but it sort of reminds us what can happen. And uh, so I think, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities for campaigning, for activism, and to get an instrument that will just turn, you know, turn things on their head when it comes to actually giving some vulnerable people more power than they currently have in our legal system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've had another audience question on that, George. Um, would you be able to comment on the treatment of non-citizens living in Australia during the pandemic? And so therefore the human rights implications for those individuals? Yeah, it's been really distressing, I think. And um, I mean, you look at, say, international students and Victoria's actually been much better than others. New South Wales has been really appalling and, and actually just leaving those people 
literally to beg for food or to go to soup kitchens or other places. And, and these are students who have come here to get an education, who have paid a lot of money often to come here and, and we've treated them with great disrespect and a real lack of compassion, particularly in New South Wales. Um, elsewhere, we've seen other really big problems with, um, say, non-residents and others able to access the country to even return to family members. Um, and you can understand travel restrictions, but sometimes it's been very blunt. And if you're not a citizen, you've missed out on really basic entitlements to be with family and others. And again, it's, it's exactly the sort of area where a decent human rights charter would make a big difference because you would say it's about basic human rights, it's about family life. Uh, this is a really arbitrary, indefensible decision, but instead, what can you do? Um, there, is no, there is no comeback for these things. And it's often these people, asylum seekers and others, who you know, need typically a lawyer, need someone who's armed with a tool who can argue that they get some justice and fair treatment. Um, I suspect, you know, after COVID-19, we'll see more of these stories coming out. Um, and I think it's really important that we give those stories voice so that people understand what happened and that we change the system to prevent it in like situations. And if I can quickly add something to that, Democracy in Colour has been doing a lot of work around trying to expand the wage subsidy to include, you know, the some 1.1 million um, international students, temporary visa holders, undocumented workers and people seeking asylum refugees that have been cruelly excluded uh, from uh, JobKeeper. Uh, uh, and, you know, we saw in the last week that there was a $60 billion uh, underspend in JobKeeper. There's literally no excuse uh, to not expand JobKeeper to, to cover these workers. It's now just been exposed that the government's only excuse is that they don't see these people as human, because if you did see these people as human, uh, you would not leave them to starve. You would not leave them to fall into destitution uh, whilst we're in the midst of, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. Uh, and I think the other thing, you know, look, it's important to provide support to all people because all people are people. You know, they're human beings and all lives have value. But the other thing that just really exposes the hypocrisy of this is that, you know, these people are, are critical to this country's success um, and are critical, you know, uh, are, cri are, are critical pillars of this country's economy. Uh, the education industry is is like underpinned fundamentally by international students. It would collapse without international students. Um, uh, hospitality is underpinned by you know migrant workers, our, 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 our farm work. You know who picks our, our fruit and vegetables? Who who you know puts our gets our food to supermarkets? It's it's migrant workers. It's undocumented workers. It's some one hundred thousand undocumented workers in horticulture and agriculture. Um, you know who's doing our cleaning? Who's doing all the jobs we don't want to do? Um, and so, you know, it's just like this absurd hypocrisy that this country uh, is prepared to reap the economic awards of their labour uh, in the good times. Uh, but when, you know, a crisis hits, uh, we're prepared to, you know, wash our hands of them and repent, pretend we don't have any responsibility at all. And the other thing to think about with this is that, you know, migrant workers are overrepresented in highly casualised industries. You think about hospitality, cleaning, care work. Uh, um, you know, especially if you're an undocumented worker, you have no job security. Um, you don't have access to, you know, paid sick leave or healthcare or anything like that. Uh, and so we've got workers that uh, uh, one, like more exposed to potentially getting the virus because they're in sort of frontline jobs. They are essential workers. You think about cleaners, you know, hospitality, you can't not interact with people in these jobs. Um, and two, they're in a position they're in a less of a position to physically distance if they do get sick because you can't physically distance if you can't pay the rent. You know, these people earn poverty wages or have heavily depressed incomes. Um, you can't, you know, physically distance if you can't put food on the table. So they're just going to work if they're sick anyway. So it's, it's one, it's like, it's fundamentally immoral. It's like morally bankrupt 
bankrupt that you would do this to any human being. Two, it's just like racist. It's like three, it's hypocritical. And four, it's just dumb. It's stupid. It's myopic policy. This is how other countries like Singapore that were seen as, you know, world leaders in the response had this enormous second wave because they fucked over their migrant workers and we're doing the exact same thing. Uh, so it's, it's dumb on all levels. Anyway, that's, that's that. Agreed. Thank you very much, Tim. That was a really great answer. Um, uh, we're going to go to another audience question. So we're working through audience questions that have been submitted previously or um, in the Zoom forum tonight. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if you can see that, Tim, but we have an amen, Tim, a here, here, and a well said, Tim. <laughs> so thank you in the chat forum, you can see. Um, I'm wondering, so we have an audience question. Do you think the use of extraordinary powers will have a cultural or lasting impact on how we perceive and how rigorously we scrutinise government action and its impact on human rights? Um, Tamar, do you want to speak on this one first? Um, yeah, well, look, I, I'm, I mean, it's, it's all, it's, we, we don't really know what's going to happen, but I'm hoping this has really woken people up to, um, a whole lot of things. One, that the government can do a whole lot of great things around economics and that we don't need to live in this kind of neoliberal economic system that we've had. There are, there are other possibilities for, for dealing with economics. But also, yeah, that, hey, um, the government can suddenly impose a whole lot of restrictions on our human rights and there's no checks and balances around that. And hey, we need to do something. So, look, I'm I'm actually feeling quite hopeful that this is going to shake up a lot of people's understanding around the way the whole system works and what what to ha how to expect, what kind of expectations we can have of government, and what kind of um, frameworks we need around government to protect us from from imposition of um, outrageous laws that we're at this stage thinking are, are reasonably okay, but. Um, at some stage may not be in the future. So, yeah, we'll see. I think this is going to be galvanising and that's my hope. Absolutely. Uh, did either of you, George or Tim, want to speak on that at all? Yeah, look, I think you know, I think it has the potential. I think um, it could be galvanising. I hope it's galvanising, but that's really the, the test, isn't it? To mm. see, you know, whether advocates, people like yourselves, pick this up and run with it. Because, you know, Australian history is full of lots of, lots of examples where we thought this could be you know, could make a difference, but nobody picked it up and ran with it. And so it's going to take a lot of skill, I think, of advocacy, uh, particularly coming out of a pandemic where there'll just be a sense of relief. You know, just get on with normalcy. Don't raise difficult issues. We just want to go back to the way things were. And so turning something like this into to law reform, progressive change, I, I think it's possible. There's big potential there, but you're going to have to be savvy and uh, have a really clear strategy to make that work. I think it's also going to require a lot of networking across different groups. Um, because there'll have to be some sort of concerted push um, and clarity about what people are seeking. Because if we say got 10 different groups after 10 different things, it won't go very far. There's got to be you know, a clear idea about what people want out of this. Yeah. I'm really worried that it will lead to some sort of permanent uh, or, you know, long-term regression. I think it was sort of talking about this before, but it's, it's, this is a slippery slope and it's really 
hard to wind back things. Um, and the sense of the Overton window and when the center shifts and what, what is defined or perceived as normal shifts, uh, it's very hard to, to, to recreate that. And I think we're already starting to see that. You know, one example um, is there were expanded powers given to um, uh, PSOs in Victoria, uh, in our Victorian police are, are, are signaling that they want um, those expanded powers to, to be ongoing uh, beyond the sort of immediate COVID crisis. And that's just one example of like, you know, the normalization of increased police power um, uh, uh, in that case. But I think there's uh, many other examples of um, uh, uh, expanded, like the expanded ability of the state to do harm that's not really being contested or thought about so much. You know, the COVID app is um, a great example. You know, people sort of dismiss privacy concerns with this, like nothing to hide, nothing to fear sort of idea. But, you know, that's just like um, ignorance through privilege that like actually, uh, uh, you know, the first targets of expanded surveillance powers might not be yourself, but that doesn't mean they don't matter. Um, and it's it's normally those that are already, you know, um, targeted by the state anyway, or the people of colour or low-income folks or Indigenous folks or, or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's it's very... Um, it's, it's worrying, you know, um, and I think we need to do a lot of work to fight back against that. And sort of what George was mentioning, especially now as we're entering into a, uh, a COVID-induced, you know, economic downturn, people are just like, you know, worried about paying rent and putting food on the table and like living paycheck to paycheck. Even in, in these contexts, it's even like more difficult to think about anything outside of your bubble. Um, and it's even easier, I think, to push through um, some of these extreme things. And we're starting to see that like with the COVID commission, you know, like this idea of a, a gas powered economic recovery, uh, our opponents, our enemies are using this moment right now to offer solutions um, to the problems that we're facing that further entrench inequality uh, and that further entrench, uh, you know, the catastrophes that existed uh, before this crisis. Um, and it's happening right now, you know, and it's just hard to detect because there's so much noise happening uh, and people are just like, really worried, rightly so, about what the hell they're going to do um, right now and, and into the short and medium term and long term future. Yeah, it'll be interesting seeing uh, this debate around the winding back of JobSeeker and the fact that for the first time, many people on Newstart or on, on, on some of these payments are getting like a reasonably living wage. They're actually able to buy food and go, go to the doctor, pay for medicine. Uh, so, yeah, they can't pay rent, but... Um, but it's an interesting experience to actually, for the first time, get something that's a bit more comfortable than just gutter, living in the gutter. And I'm wondering, like, this is going to be an interesting shift. Is the, What is the government going to do? Is there going to be mass protests when that payment is wound back? And, you know, is that going to be a point um, where we can see some movement? Yeah, absolutely. That will be really interesting to see. Um, Tim, just on what we were talking about before regarding protections that we do have for documented workers during COVID and um, how they don't apply to undocumented workers. Um, I'm wondering, well, actually, Alex is wondering, um, how do we, you protect those uh, that are undocumented? Like, what do you propose? Well, uh, you know, there's the immediate response that needs to happen in the context of the COVID crisis and then there's long-term reform that needs to happen. Um, we need a, a, a visa 
um, uh, well, that is an immediate response you can employ, but like long-term, we need a visa amnesty. There needs to be a, um, a long-term uh, sort of pathway to citizenship for these people that have, some have been here for, you know, 10 years, uh, uh, um, 10 plus years. They, they have their lives here. They have family here. Um, what, what they just, they have just haven't been afforded the same privileges um, as other migrants or as people like, you know, the folks on this call and myself uh, uh, to uh, pursue uh, the traditional routes, routes to, to citizenship. And so uh, they, that shouldn't mean that they denied that. Um, one thing we're working on right now, um, uh, which is quite practical, is trying to try and establish an information firewall between the Department of Home Affairs and health professionals. Uh, if you're an undocumented worker, you know, and you front up to a hospital, um, there is a risk that you could have your visa checked, uh, you know, what's uh, called a vivo check, um, and potentially be detained uh, and or deported or in COVID times, and it just means indefinitely detained as borders are closed and flights are, uh, are cancelled. Um, uh, and, and that provides, you know, that's, that's, that, that's like one bad from a human rights uh, angle because like access to healthcare in a pandemic should be a like, fundamental right. Uh, but two, it's just like bad in a, in a health crisis generally because you don't want to create a positive disincentive for 100,000 people in this country to not front up to a hospital when they're exhibiting like symptoms. It's just terrible, especially when these folks, you know, there's plenty of like examples. When you talk about, um, talk to like organisers at the National um, the United Workers Union, which is a union that covers most of these workers you talk to these folks and it's quite common for them to go to a house where there's like 17 people in a three-bedroom house like how, how are you supposed to physically distance in that and those circumstances and again like we were saying earlier they have like such depressed wages that they just can't afford to not work um, and so they're going to do that if they're if they're uh, sick anyway so there's like all of these contexts so i think the information firewall to make sure that there's absolutely no communication between health professionals um, and the department of home affairs that there is a universal like guarantee to healthcare, bulk bill, you know, free, accessible, universal healthcare. Um, and also we need to the Department of Home Affairs to like sit back for a bit, you know, to, to take a take to chill out and um, have a have a nap and, and to stop uh, its detection activities uh, and its detention activities um, during the COVID crisis, preferably indefinitely, but uh, you know, um, we'll take we'll take it for, for the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. So where time is almost up um, and we're just gonna say one ask one more question uh, which is a question from the audience so i'm wondering if any of you have thoughts on the difference between targeting economic stimulus directly to the person so bottom up or through corporations so top down um yeah any of you willing to speak on that um I mean, I think we definitely saw the first, um, I mean, they've been a lot better, I think, in the, the most recent stimulus packages. But, you know, in the first stimulus package, or the first two stimulus packages, for example, you know, 70% of the announcements that were um, raised went to businesses uh, and only around 30% of measures went to households in the form of increased social security payments. And even with JobKeeper, right, like it is, it goes to businesses. Like it's, it's a payment where you pay, the government pays your employer to pay you. Um, so I just think like, you know, uh, it's just another manifestation of this government's ideology, um, which is a focus on like, uh, you know, the minimization of the role of government um, in, even in, in, the, in the context of like a global pandemic um, uh, in people's lives uh, and the maximization of like the role of the, the corporate or, or your boss in, 
in, in, in the provision of some of these services. Yeah, so it speaks to a bit of a wider point about the way Australia works, I guess. Um, thank you all so much for coming tonight. Um, sorry, we've gone a couple of minutes over time. Thank you very much, Tim, Tamara and George. It's been so great hearing what you've had to say and we're so lucky to have all of your perspectives. Thank you, pleasure. Bye. Thanks everyone.